This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. It's, I think, to be uh, especially a Muslim woman, a visible Muslim woman, is to constantly walk around like, um, you know, knowing that you are like, <laughs> like, when I was growing up, it meant that I knew that when I walked into a room, I would be hated on sight. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! One, two, two, interchangeable. White ladies! Interchangeable. Interchangeable. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. Today, before we get going, we have a special word from one of our sponsors. Hello, beloved IWL listeners. This is Annie, perpetual interchangeable white lady and erstwhile co-host of this fine program. While I'm on sabbatical from the pod, taking care of the family, while Hope and Megan continue to create amazing content, I've had time to reflect on the Interchangeable White Ladies podcast and its dynamic run thus far. This is the 100th episode of the show, and Wikipedia had some thrilling insights about the importance of the number 100, including the fact that it follows 99 and precedes 101. 100 is the sum of the first nine prime numbers, and much like the age at which you have enough money to go on a real vacation, but not enough sense to pack light, is a semi-perfect number. Expressed in Celsius, 100 is the boiling point of water. A musical horn called a shofar is blasted 100 times during the Rosh Hashanah or Jewish New Year service. Most currencies around the world are divided into 100 subunits and there are 100 years in a century. 100 is also the yet unbroken record-setting number of points scored in one NBA game by a single player. Wilt Chamberlain of the Philadelphia Warriors on March 2nd, 1962. All that to say, 100 is a very important number. You may not be aware, but kindergarten teachers take the 100th day of school very seriously, almost like a holiday. You're 100 days smarter, they say. Well, no matter where you are in life's journey, I hope this 100th episode of the Interchangeable White Ladies podcast finds you 100 episodes more critical of white nonsense, 100 episodes more wary of standardized testing, multi-level marketing schemes, toxic positivity, and deficit language in education, 100 episodes more courageous as you seek committed allies to face down adversity and injustice, and 100 episodes more aware of the power dynamics in systems we often take for granted. Cheers! And here's to 100 more. All right. So thank you so much to that sponsor. We're always so grateful. Um, So today we have a very um, exciting, exciting guest with us. Our essential question that we're going to be tackling today is how can we normalize the representation of Muslims in literature and support storytelling that tackles Islamophobia, increasing empathy across cultures and religions? 
We are absolutely delighted to celebrate our 100th episode with a very special guest. Author S.K. Ali is the author of Saints and Misfits, a 2018 William C. Morris Award finalist, winner of the APALA Honor Award and Middle East Book Honor Award, and the book Love from A to Z, an NBC Today show's Read with Jenna book club selection. Both novels were critically acclaimed and named top 10 YA books of the year by various media, including Entertainment Weekly and Kirkus Reviews. Her newest novel, Misfits in Love, comes out in May, May 25th, 2021, just around the corner. Um, Sajida is also the co-editor of the critically acclaimed middle grade anthology, Once Upon an Eid, and co-author of the New York Times best-selling picture, The Proudest Blue. And I already messed up pronounce- pronouncing your name, and so I just want to acknowledge that. We always try to uh, let listeners know that as well. So Sajida, right? Is that better? Yes, yes. Perfect. Thanks. <laughs> I, and I always tell my students, I'm like, correct me a million times because a I want to say it the yeah. way... Um, your grandma says that the people who love you say it. So thank you so much for coming on our show. If you want to say it the way my grandma says it, you're yeah. going to say Saji. Saji. I hope I'm stealing that, by the way. I love, I've never, I've always said, like, correct me a million times, but saying it like, I want to say it like your grandma says it or the people that love you say it. I'm going to say that to my students now. I love that. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited to have this conversation with you and to have you on the podcast. Before we fully jump into the conversation, um, beyond that bio that we got from your website, what else should listeners know about you to kind of frame our discussion or frame the conversation? Thank you so much um, for having me. I'm so excited to be here um, to talk about this topic with um, you. Um, so beyond my bio, I would say that I think it's important that is no, what's known is that I come from a family background that always encouraged like critical thinking and courage in doing and addressing um, issues and topics and things that we saw around. Um, so it was really easy for me to decenter like the white gaze in my writing. And a lot of readers kind of comment on that to me about how like they feel really like there's an unapologetic Muslimness that comes through in my work. And I think that's from that background. And though I, you know, I didn't grow up seeing myself reflected in society in books or in TV or in movies. I was at home, I was surrounded by bookshelves, which had books written in Arabic and Persian and Urdu and other Muslim languages. And though I couldn't read them, just having them like, like, you know, in our living room gave me a sense of confidence in my right to tell my story and to be creative. And that like, I had a story worth telling that so many others had done so before me. Um, That was something like my father would always like, point out like you know there's this book and there's that book and and then in terms of something um more personal like biographically I've always seen myself as a work in progress so I'm like like I don't ever feel like I've quote-unquote arrived so I'm always like working on something developing something more in me so right now I'm like working on becoming an illustrator and because my earliest um, me- memories of recording stories is through daily drawing. And then and when I began writing, it was to like accompany my drawings. And from like elementary school on, I used to just like come home, get a quick snack and then draw for an hour and make up stories. So my stories were captured in drawings and I continued that through high school um, and university. So it was like a way to de-stress because you know, it's only now that I'm just like, I'm realizing how much like different 
parts of my life were affected by the trauma of being othered so much. And I think that was, and I want to go back to that now, like that, you know, that, you know, unpacking some of that trauma through drawing and actually adding that to my, um, to my publishing. Mm. I, hearing you say that, um, it makes me think I was, um, in preparation for this episode, I read a quote that you said that books were like groceries in your household. Mm -hmm. And I can absolutely relate to that concept where it's like they were seen, books were seen as essential as groceries. And that you, you just said you started so early in this narrative. How did you make that leap into Mm -hmm. being writing? Like a lot of kids do into looking at yourself as an author, as a writer. So for that, um, like in terms of like really seeing that it was a possibility, um, I think for that, that was like something I I went to a school that really emphasized creativity. Um, It was an inner city school and like in a, in a, you know, struggling neighborhood, but it had a lot of like focuses on the arts. And uh, one of, one of the things that we had very early on was this thing called you know, um, Young Writers Week. And it was a whole week when the whole school would be involved in like producing their own books. And at the end of the week, like um, you would get your own book that you had made um, that quote unquote got published and everyone got to see each other's books. And so there was this like fostering of like the sense that this was something really important. And um, so that was, that was, you know, that seed of like, this is something to be valued was mm. emphasized at home and from my school experience. Um, and then, yeah. And then, you know, something specific happened to me in seventh grade where my teacher told me that I was a writer and like, she actually used those words. Did you know you're a writer? And cause until that moment I had, I didn't know anything solid about myself except identity things like I'm, I'm, I was Muslim mm. and I was Brown and from, you know, originally from South India and, but, and, and that I liked certain things, like, but I, that I didn't know as a practitioner of those things. And, but like the first two weeks of um, seventh grade, my teacher, uh, who's known to be like a strict teacher, um, like <laughs> she would keep watching me when I'd write. Um, and, you know, when it was like our writing in your notebook time. And uh, then she called me up and she's like, did you write this by yourself? And I'm like, Yes. I'm so scared. (laughs) Like, do it, you know, I don't know. I was just sitting there writing and she said, well, did you know you're a writer? And that was the first moment. I remember so clearly that like, that I was, I believed in my capability of something that I wasn't just an invisible brown girl, invisible for not having talents, but hyper visible for my hijab. And then there was this other thing that was visible in me that I could write. And, um, yeah. And then I reconnected with this teacher, uh, 30 years later. And, uh, like, it was like, I'd been searching for her, but I never yeah. found her until I, my book, my first book got published and she actually reached out. Cause a friend of mine wrote about, um, you know, going on a writing retreat with me. And then she mentioned my name in the article and uh, she got an email saying, is this the Sajda? They went to the school and it was my teacher and uh, we reconnected. Oh so, <laughs> yeah, so that was a moment that made that leap for me from just like writing at home and drawing at home stories to like, OK, this is something I'm dedicating myself to, you know. 
I absolutely love that story. Thank, Thank you so much for sharing that. So when you, so as an English teacher, I'm thinking about just the power of words and and seeing students and and really celebrating and, and call on in a way kind of um, prophesying or calling out the work that you ended up going into um, and how powerful that can be. When you think back to books from your childhood, are there any books that you especially found um, pulled you in or you, you found yourself kind of mirroring stylistically? I know this is a very English teacher question, <laughs> but I can't help ask. Um, yeah. So when I when I first started uh, writing, it was just obviously like, yeah, a lot of mirroring was happening of like things I was reading. Um, but when I really started like trying to develop um, my style, um, which was really in high school, mm-hmm. um, then I was like I was reading a lot of either British fiction or um, or like South, uh, like American Deep South fiction, which was like, you know, um, you know, I really was into Flannery Connor and the Southern <laughs> writers. And and I was like, I, I was like, oh. when I look back at that time, all my fiction were about like um, elderly people and like older women look talking about their garden. And like, <laughs> it was like nothing reflecting my, you know, my, yeah. um, like, you know, my experiences in any way and it was it was just all yeah it's like yeah English garden stuff like I don't know so it was like yeah it was just exactly what I was um what I was reading but I never meant I never made the the connection to write um with my experiences or emulating kind of like the the marginalized um authors that were being heralded at the time until I went to university and um I that was the first time I read um like non-white authors and then I felt like this permission to like Mm. explore my identity yeah but before then it was like yeah it was just like the classics the you know the people I was reading that were classic you know considered the classics in the canon that I was just emulating those yeah did you ever, so you just kind of mentioned you didn't really read any authors of color until you got to college. You didn't mm-hmm. read any in K-12? No, I, the only, okay, so my seventh grade teacher, besides being like, you know, an amazing person for like finding talents within their students or her students, she also was the first one who introduced like, like she introduced indigenous, um, some mm-hmm. indigenous voices in in our class and um, and like, you know, some native um writers and that was my only real exposure to non yeah non-white um authors because it was always like the canon right like you had to you had to teach Shakespeare you had to teach this you had to mm-hmm. teach you know yeah. uh, Mark Twain and like it was just it was that was it so I didn't really um no I didn't really explore any anybody else even even like when I was reading about other people's like there was this one um one uh book I read with a Muslim character but it was written by a white author and it wasn't really good and I still remember now like some of my even even though I'm I'm you know my background is from India uh my the framing of if my thoughts about India came from white authors and Mm -hmm. I used to be I used to think it was like when I used to go visit um I used to look for misogyny because it was like it was just developed in me by reading especially like British um, authors writing about India how you know how they framed the way that women were treated as though 
misogyny yeah. doesn't didn't exist everywhere. And I remember like some really visceral things I'd read about like, you know, how women were treated that I would actively look for that. Hmm. And so it actually like framed, yeah. And I, I wasn't able to get away from that until I did a lot of work to unpack that my, myself. Yeah. This makes me think about, so we've had on the podcast, we have a phenomenal librarian at mm-hmm. the school that I teach at. Um, and she is passionate about decolonizing bookshelves, especially in school libraries. She's done just a significant amount of work on that. She's been on the podcast to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And when I was preparing, um, prepping for this episode, I saw um, that you had created in 2017, this hashtag Muslim shelf space. Mm-hmm. Can you share kind of what your inspiration mm-hmm. behind the creation of that hashtag was, what it is? Because I feel like it really connects to the mm-hmm. story that you are telling about yourself and your own experience. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so Muslim shelf space arose out of, um, you know, some, there was a lot of social media activism that was addressing, you know, the publishing industry. Like mm-hmm. that was, you know, first it's, you know, no, sorry, I shouldn't say first because I don't know where the first was, but like a big one was the one in 2014, the We Need Diverse Books campaign. And it was really, yeah. a, it was really a way to like, you know, um, tell the publishing industry that there will be readers if you publish these diverse books. It was a kind of an economic, um, mm-hmm. you know, focus as well. And so when, um, you know, when, you know, more Muslim authored books were, you know, being picked up, I realized that, you know, that publishing really had these erroneous ideas about readerships and how because of people had started being candid people inside publishing uh, people of color had started being candid and saying that they were hearing things in acquisition meetings like who's going to read this like story about this muslim family and everything so there was this like erroneous these erroneous ideas about like if you we publish these books nobody's going to buy it or you know Mm. And, and, and actually it's, it's not going to do well. So, um, so a few of us Muslim authors were discussing like how, how to like, you know, emphasize that we need these Muslim books and we need to see ourselves on shelves and everything. So um, I actually tweeted, um, like, I think there was like some, there was a book that was, had really bad representation of Muslims coming out. And, um, and uh, it was, it was by, it wasn't by a Muslim. And so I tweeted a picture of my shelf of Muslim books. And I was like, you know, this is like, this is the real stories. Like, you know, this, these are the stories and people loved that. And they were like, yeah, these are our shelves. And, Mm. and uh, you know, people are sharing their, you know, limited number of Muslim authored books. And so then we were like, you know what, this was like in late, um, late 2016. So then we were like, okay, so what about we launch this, you know, this idea of like people sharing their pictures of their Muslim shell space. And even if you didn't have any Muslim books, like authored Mm. books, then share the empty shelf that you're going to be stocking the space and you're going to be, you know, so it was like a message that there's so little, we want more. Mm. And people mm-hmm. saying we are going to buy it we're going to buy it if you if publishers put this out so that's where it came the idea came from and then uh an author friend coined like we were looking for different hashtags we could use to mm-hmm. like really you know galvanize people around it and um and, a, and an, an author friend 
um, Karina Riazi, she came up with the idea of Muslim shelf space as being like, and then I liked that one. And I was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's a great one. So then we, we, we went with that and we started it 2017, January, and uh, it just started to ca- catching on and people were like, yeah, we're ready. We want these voices, you know? And that was like, that was the, that was this, the thing behind it. Sorry, my cat is just starting <laughs> to, <laughs> just to join the like, conversation. Like <laughs> he agreed. He agreed. Yes. <laughs> so when you yeah. picture, so I'm thinking about your what you're saying, and it really reminds me of, I'm sure you've seen the conversation around disrupt texts um, and just that notion of, um, offering counter perspectives, perspectives by people living the experience or people that have often been pushed to the margins. Um, and one of the things I was wondering about when you picture your audience, the people who are picking this up, you know, who do you, who do you write for? I, I know we always have like the, the people we picture, but then also like who ends up reading our work. And I'm curious, do you have that sense of intended audience when you write that you're imagining reading your stories and your books? Um, so I, I, I never had that idea when I was writing my debut novel. It was more like, here's something that I'm writing that, you know, I'd like to look at, you know, it was a story I wanted to tell. Um, Later, obviously, you know, when you get published, then you connect with readers and you start like, you know, really seeing who your audience is. Then obviously, then it shapes, you know, some of your writing. So now um, I actually do, I actually do primarily, like I, I write for, everyone obviously um you know but i like the way this one author i was in a panel with he described it he was um a mexican-american background and he said that he imagines like when he's telling a story that you know he's telling it around a campfire and there's like the first the first like audience like if there's a circle the first circle is his you know mexican young mexican-american readers and you know that next young readers who you know, this story is going to touch in a, you know, really, you know, visceral way. So there's that. And then there's like other layers of audiences. So for me, mm. young Muslims who had had to deal with the, um, just with the pain of being like so malrepresented for so long. And um, there's an excellent video actually on YouTube um, about this that just came out um, with young Muslim girls talking about how they feel about all the uh, representation Mm -hmm. and it's it's really really gets to the core of how you know to be to be moving through a society that has such erroneous ideas about you and so I write for them first like Mm -hmm. that's my first like who I imagine first when I'm like when I'm writing is like is like here you know I understand what you you know what you're going through and I'm, you know, I'm going to tell these stories from a place of love and warmth Mm. to you. And that's, yeah. I love that. It actually makes me think the first time I came across your book was one of my Muslim male male students picked it up last year and was reading it for our independent reading. It was this book. And I was like, how's that book? And he, he, he just gave, he's very solemn senior. And he was like, yes, it's good. You know, whatever he gave me, it's not. And I kept asking about it and he really liked it. And I, I just thought it was such a, like, he, he was kind of, I, I knew it was a romance. And so I was like, I didn't expect it, but he, I think that to your point, like he, he found himself there and he felt, he felt mm. connected. He, and, and he just, he read the whole thing, ate it up and told us it was all good. <laughs> so I, <laughs> we started passing it around the high school, encouraging other folks to read it as well. Megan, yeah. you look like you're about to ask a question. 
Um, man, I was, and I was on the tip of my tongue and then I got lost thinking about, no, (laughs) thinking about your student and how, um, like just being able to see yourself in stories like that enough, that alone for marginalized communities can be enough. Um, Oh, go ahead, Hope. Well, no, I, I was thinking it kind of leading into the question. I, I saw you um, tweeted about misfits in love, and you mm-hmm. were talking a lot about how you want to write about Muslim characters that are experiencing joy amidst life's hardship. Um, and then you you, you kind of had that little sarcasm. Ima- imagine the concept. And mm-hmm. I would love if you could just speak to that idea about mm-hmm. why you include mm-hmm. so many different, well, all the things that you include. Like, why do you think it's so important to include this idea of, of everyday life and especially joy? Um, because Muslims, especially Muslim women, um, have been framed in this way that denies our joy for in just being. And like, I can't count how many times like my friends and I have been called brave, quote unquote, for doing things that everyone else does. <laughs> like a friend recently said, like, she feels like people are saying, wow, you're brave for even breathing as a Muslim woman. Like they think our default, like the perception is the default is this like we're on this plane of grim, dark oppression that we're drudging through and like just like smiling means you're booking away. But um, it, it just, I think there's so many media messages and images that permeate, um, you know, our society that makes it seem like, you know, a woman who does something, a Muslim woman who does something is doing something out of the ordinary for her. Um, you know, like Bill Clinton moderated a panel with the Muslim uh, with a Muslim editor, a young woman, and he asked a question on stage that typifies how we're seeing. Like he commented on how how uh, like wow how ordinary how out of the ordinary was for a Muslim woman doing her job, and like basically connoting how brave it was. And and uh, luckily, like this um, this editor schooled him because she was like, no, this is like you know it's not. Mm-hmm. out of the norm and um and and you know so it, it just it just didn't happen that this sense of oppression and happiness is linked to muslim identity it's been built up over years you know um and in, in writing i aim to record truths and so in, in those truths you'll find like happiness and joy existing alongside pain and the hardships of life like for all humans right and so yeah so it's i think to be a, especially a muslim woman a visible muslim woman is to constantly walk around like um you know knowing that you are like (laughs) like when i was growing up it meant that i knew that when i walked into a room i would be hated on site Mm -hmm. like without opening my mouth right like because especially then because now we see more um you know more you know representation more young women speaking up and like, you know, the, the growth of social media and people able to record their own, you know, experiences and everything. There is like an opening up of like that, the understanding that, you know, people's experiences could look different than what's, mm-hmm. what's shown. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So that's great. But when I was young, it was a different and it was, and I mean, but watching this, this recent like YouTube clip taught me made me realize that no it's not that there's still like these young women still grapple with that like you know that sense around them that they are not um you know just by just by um just by being they're they're seen default their default is is oppression like they think it's an like they're seen as an Mm -hmm. 
you know, living an oppressive life. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, I would, I'm excited to jump into that conversation a bit more, but we've got to take a break. So let's take a break really quickly. And when we come back, we'll kind of continue that conversation that I think is really important. Hi, Hope. Hey, Megan. So how's life in Abu Dhabi? Uh, hot, sunny, sandy, and 99 degrees. <laughs> Ooh, the exact opposite here in Tacoma. Cold, cloudy, and really wet. Well, this is part of the fun of living overseas. I mean, it is amazing teaching abroad. As you know, I can't say enough about the experience being in a different place for an extended period of time, experiencing a variety of cultures. I'm in the best of both worlds. I love my job and I have amazing opportunities. Man, my jealousy is growing. So I actually have a coworker who's interested in teaching abroad and I was telling them about your and Nate's experience. If she wants to teach abroad, what should she do? That's actually easy. She should go to searchassociates.com and start her search today. Search Associates works with 800 schools in 125 countries, so there are many, many places to choose from depending on our interests. Whew, that is a lot of options. Is it overwhelming? Not at all. The awesome thing about it is when you sign up using Search Associates, you are assigned an associate who works directly with you to get to know your interests and what you're looking for, and they'll help you find the perfect fit. It couldn't be easier. More than 40,000 highly qualified teachers, administrators, counselors, librarians, interns, and other educators have used Search Associates to find positions in top K-12 international schools. Wait, wait, wait. So any teacher can sign up? Yes. Emphasis on any. Search Associates is committed to finding placements for teachers of diverse backgrounds. They're doing the work internally as an organization and also within the international schools community. They want to use their position to influence changes at schools they work with as well and support diverse candidates in those schools. You know, that's a really great approach. It is. So if you're ready to make that move, come across the world, come overseas, do what Nate and I did and trust the expert guidance of Search Associates. To start your journey, visit searchassociates.com. Thank you, Search Associates, for helping us live our dream and teach abroad. And thank you for your support of this podcast. All right. So welcome back, everybody. Right before the break, we were discussing kind of the um, really the the white perception that Muslim women are constantly in a state of oppression. And I always think about, we talk about on our podcast frequently, this idea of um, there's always a hero, a victim, and a villain in the narrative and the story. And white people are so used to being the hero and the victim and never the villain. And I think that the perception of... Um, white people is that um, Muslim women are oppressed and and that it's white people's job to save them, to be the hero and to be the savior in that. And I think that what I, when I see that, I think of France and this law that has come out in France um, about the hijab. And I, um, I think it's such a modern telling of Islamophobia and it has brought Islamophobia back into the forefront of the news cycle. And oftentimes it kind of fades and it ebbs and flows. And I guess my question is, how do you see your work um, in the larger context of that conversation around Islamophobia and becoming a part of the narrative or how do you hope that your work will become a part of that narrative? Um, so, you know, when, when I was um, growing up and writing, a lot of the Muslim community would emphasize, you know, to young people who wanted to go into the creative fields that, you know, you have to defend us and you have to, you know, um, 
you know, you have to set the record straight and everything. And so I had this, that sense of activism when I was young about writing that it was like, you know, it was, it was a place of activism. And so my writing was very like, you know, essay-ish based and like trying to convince people. Um, But then as I, you know, as I grew and um, just see, remembered the power of stories because I fell in love with stories when I was young from my mother. Um, you know, sometimes she'd have this like, let's camp in the living room idea where we'd all like, you know, sleep on the floor in the living room and she'd tell us stories. And these stories were like, obviously, like, you know, little fables from it, it had, they had lessons under them. But, you know, what I remember about them was like these monkey kings and these crocodiles, like witty crocodiles and different things that just really just wrapped me in their their coziness because Mm. it was it was just you know dependable stories I I don't know it just gave me the sense and that's how I fell in love with stories and and then I you know just that that experience of reading and falling in love with different writers um especially in fourth grade you know just I discovered Beverly Cleary and Judy Mm -hmm. Bloom and just fell in love with all those um as I as I you know as I then grew into like my thinking about it, I kind of adopted Toni Morrison's way of looking at um, writing, which was like, don't write to someone else's agenda. Like, it's not like if the agenda of the outside society is like, you know, you Muslim women are oppressed and you are like this. And if our whole raison d'etre becomes Hmm. as writers, just to prove you guys wrong, like to prove the society wrong, um that's not like it's it's just so draining it's just so like devoid of like you know true passion and creativity because I shouldn't exist just you know as a writer just Mm -hmm. to you know deal with the things that people have put on my plate you know or you know Mm -hmm. erroneously done and so I loved her way of thinking of like she Mm -hmm. had this she said recently that you know I I stood at the margin and I claimed it as the center and I love that. It's like, yes, I want to write about the the things that like, you know, I grew up with like as, you know, in in a place of warmth. I saw my community, Muslim community is a place of warmth and as like, uh, you know, a place of like where I felt like I could be myself. And so I'm going to write from those experiences. So I'm not going to descent like I'm going to decenter the ways that I've been perceived and if in doing so, some of, you know, the, the misconceptions fall away when people read my stories, then amazing, then great. Mm. But I'm not going to set out to do that. Like, that's not my setting out, you know, that's not my set out when I try to write, like, I'm, I'm writing, yeah, I'm writing our stories. And I, I actually see it as like, also, I had this aha that like, you know, if, if there was a time capsule like of all Muslim stories, um, you know, from when I was growing up, like the recorded public storage of like the stories about my identity, it would be full of like, you know, it would be fake. It would be like nothing of what our experiences were actually Mm. were. It wouldn't capture because we weren't telling our own stories. So for me, it's like I'm capturing our experiences so that there is a real Uh, you know a real record of them in in the public sphere like so when people pick up my books you're going to you're going to read 
you know, that's why it resonates with like Muslim readers around the world Mm -hmm. is because, yeah, they recognize, yeah, this is what it is, not this other thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So like, oh yeah, a lot of the things like, you know, policies and I mean, like, you know, people don't see the connection between the stories we tell and public policies, but we know from like things that have happened even just recently with the Muslim travel ban in, you know, in the United mm-hmm. States and stuff, that the stories around Muslims um, being one of violence and oppression and stuff like, which is of the furthest, you know, from the truth of our, like, what we're daily told, like, in our homes and in our, you know, mosques and everything, like, it's just that story of, of violence got like connected with our communities, global communities of 2 billion people that that a policy can be like mm-hmm. drive families apart and all this. And now in France, like the fact that, you know, uh, a, a, you know, a woman who wants to, you know, extend like because every every society has like nobody's walking around without clothes. Right. Like everybody, every society has mm-hmm. like, some idea of like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know uh, like it's like if somebody said to uh, to uh, just and women men anyone that no you're not allowed to wear pants mm-hmm. you're not allowed to wear pants and it's like well okay like why you know so it, people have different like lines of where they feel comfortable you yeah. know showing and um and the and women who choose to do you know to to cover then are told you are not fitting into what we think is a liberated person right so mm-hmm. yeah so that's it's 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 just um it comes from i think it comes from a lot of ignorance of like what our actual lived experiences and our and our lives really are Mm-hmm. Well, it, and it's just, it's so much about what white people have deemed what modest, what is appropriate modesty and what's not. I immediately, when you just said that, thought of um, Mormons, right? They yeah. wear their undergarments. They're not allowed to show their shoulders. And and so, mm-hmm. like, we don't see governments attempting to legally mm-hmm. regulate um Mormons from wearing their undergarments, right? It's like, it's, it is through... Yeah white eyes of what is modesty and what's not and a lot of it for like France and I think for a lot of places that you know um colonized they're Mm -hmm. like it's like it's like just recently I it was it's 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 really interesting to me that it's only recently too that I I I you know I woke up to this fact that um you know when we talk about history and we talk about like changes in history, um, we very seldom think about how long it takes, you know, yeah. for changes to, to, to happen because, mm-hmm. you know, when we, when we talk about like civil rights in our classrooms, even like, you know, as an elementary school teacher, oftentimes the narrative that I myself even like, you know, taught was like okay you know there was all of this happened and then Rosa Parks sat on a bus and Martin Luther (laughs) King like you know marched and then hooray like you know everything changed but like it doesn't change overnight it doesn't you know things don't like you know those families that protested you know a Ruby Bridges walking to school is is they didn't overnight like 
the next generation suddenly say, oh yeah, this makes sense. So mm-hmm. the same thing with France, like it has a like a heinous colonial history, especially in the Muslim world. I'm sorry, yeah. I shouldn't say especially because there's other parts of the world that was terrible as well, but the proximity to Algeria and like yeah. the, the, what happened there, it's not like that thinking towards like black and brown people will just suddenly disappear. And that they're not going to carry that on to into their policies of like how they view um, Muslim societies and Muslim women. And that's, you know, there's so much of that Oriental's um, uh-huh. narrative that's still there in their society. And I know because my, my husband's family is French and sometimes like the things that they have towards like they've they've carried. Um, I see it. It's like the, the lack of understanding of like that other people can have, um, you know, ways of of dignity and, and rights that might differ from European ones, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it's so much of what was what is normalized. And then how do you how do you change that? It takes a long it takes a long yeah. time, as you as you said. But and also I, I just keep thinking about like we have to keep on that journey right. to try to change those things um in ourselves and other in in our communities. A lot of our listeners um, you know, do some do are working on on that journey themselves. And so it's like we have to continue to do that right. to achieve the things that you're talking about um, and fully de- decolonize. Mm-hmm. The world that we live in, yeah. and at this I, point. because because I think that one of the first steps of oppression is otherizing, yeah. right? And part of otherizing is not looking at the marginalized communities as fully fleshed three dimensional characters and beings. And so, part of dismantling oppression and part of dismantling white supremacy is giving a platform for narratives that create three dimensional characters where. Mm-hmm. They write that they are fully fleshed mm-hmm. people that are not just existing. Like you said, it's like even if they're not just existing and written to be a counter narrative mm-hmm. to the white supremacy, but they just are. They are existing as mm-hmm. three dimensional characters that we can relate to. And it's um, it's one of the most powerful tools of that, that otherizing when when. Um, right in that like in that oppression um like systems of oppression mm-hmm. uh, i was wondering if so we had uh we've included a number of listener questions kind of incorporated into our episode today but one we haven't talked about is one of our listeners was asking about whether or not you have some a take on having non-muslims write stories with muslim characters or i don't know if you want to frame it as muslim stories or exactly how to approach it but we were wondering what you thought about that so um, I, I think due to the overwhelmingly negative depictions of our identity that we suffered from others writing about Muslims, like centering, you know, Muslims, it's it's really time to leave our representation in the hands of Muslims, especially as like now, um, like for so long, we've been gay kept out of creative industries. And now that it's opening up, like we should really helm it. That said, if you, I think it's really important to like, um, show diversity in your narratives, right? And so including a Muslim side character um, would be great, but then also pay for an authenticity reader and not just any authenticity reader, but a reader from the background that you're writing the character from because there are like 
like I mentioned, there's like 2 billion Muslims um, every corner yeah. of the world and different walks of life. You can have different experiences. And um, like in Love from A to Z, I had, um, you know, Adam, he's um, he's of a convert, you know, background. Um, and so he wasn't born Muslim. And he's also of, you know, uh, different, like uh, uh, different backgrounds, including um Chinese. And so I, I, you know, for the convert part, I could, cause my husband is a convert. So I could, you know, I use a lot of, you know, his insight and experiences, but for um, the other background, I paid for an authenticity reader who was a convert of Chinese background to like read it through, even though I can say, oh, I'm Muslim, you know, and I can write this Muslim character. No, because I don't know what this Muslim character fully of like of this background would be so I, I hired somebody to read it and to make sure I didn't have any blind you know spots that I didn't I, I missed or something so if you're going to include a Muslim character especially with the misrepresentations we've suffered it's really important to include an authenticity reader and um, mm-hmm. yeah but do include them because mm-hmm. you know especially young readers they love seeing that like that they're just a part of the story mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. When you think about, um, Megan, I'm going to answer another question. Sorry. (laughs) When you think about your favorite, I keep thinking about this question throughout our conversation. When you think about your favorite Muslim authors, who comes to mind or what are some um, recs that you would give our listeners? Um, So there's like, you know, a variety of now Muslim writers um, writing different things, but I'm going to give you um, two writers that I was like wow blown away to discover them as a reader myself um the first one was randa abdul fata she, she's an australian writer um and um the, her, hers was the first book that i read with um, a uh, hijabi character a uh, girl who decides to wear hijab australian uh character and um it was the first one i read that i was like wow this is like this is this is like exactly what I you know what I read like connect with um you know as a young person and um that was I was I was an adult when I read it but it was like it reflected experiences um and her that book was called um, does my head look big in this and uh and then there, yeah and then there is um and then there was another um uh, the, the second author that I felt like really captured experiences really well it was um, G. Willow Wilson. She's um, she's the creator of um, her, her book that I loved um, was Alif the Unseen. And uh, I think it's actually I think it takes place in Dubai. Um, yeah, I think oh. it's in Dubai. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually not um, a young adult book. It's an adult book. Um, and it's like a sci-fi, I think, like a fantasy speculative fiction. And uh, she she's also the creator of Miss Marvel um, for the marvel universe yeah. um okay yeah. So, yeah so those those are two that really just blew me away with like wow you captured our experiences and the first time i've encountered them perfect thank you so much yeah so we could we could sit here and talk to you forever um unfortunately our time is wrapping up but before we finish up this conversation you have a novel coming out on may 25th can you just tell our readers a little bit about it and where they can get their own copy yeah so misfit and love comes out may 25th 2021 and uh it's about 
it's a sequel to Saints and Misfits, my first novel. And it's uh, set to a big fat Muslim wedding um, by the lake. And it's a lot of just fun. And uh, it also includes heartbreak and other, you know, deeper issues. But it's it's also a, like a wedding that's gone out of hand because um, the main character's brother has become a groomzilla and taking over like <laughs> decorating and everything. And it's just like, yeah. So there's, uh, there's, yeah. So it's a fun and um, at the same time, deep um, book and it's coming out on May 25th and you can get it everywhere. Books are sold um, online and, um, and in physical bookstores in across North America. And um, I'm pretty, I don't know the UK date, but um, uh, you know, all of that will be on my publisher's um website simon and schuster uh under misfit in love yeah awesome i'm so excited to read it definitely excited um so we always do this one final segment at the end and megan do you want to say the line do your fudging homework interchangeable right ladies so uh we're gonna give listeners recommendations and homework and so i'll I'll go first and then if you you want to think about something for our listeners so i guess my homework is gonna be obvious y'all go pick up copies of these books of course i love love from a to z because that's my first ali book so i'm really excited about that book and i am recommending it to everybody but please uh, uh, go check out her other work and purchase her books Um, And then I would love to encourage everybody to go and look up that hashtag Muslim shelf space and potentially think about tweeting out a bookshelf of um, your uh, Muslim author books. And if you don't have any, like um, Ali said in the beginning of the episode, if you don't have any, tweet the empty bookshelf and give yourself some homework and go find some books. Go go buy some of the books we've talked about today. They'll be linked in our show notes. But um, really thinking about decolonizing your bookshelves and thinking about the representation that that you have in your home and the library that you are building. So, Sajda, do you have a re- uh, some homework for our listeners? Yes, I do. Um, actually, Ramadan is coming up on um, Tuesday, and so I ask all of you if you can find a Once Upon an Eid, which is an anthology collection of um, short stories, um, middle grade fiction, but it resonates with adults and um, everyone who's read it. Like it just feels this warm coziness of what, um, you know, Eid and there's Ramadan stories in there as well. And Eid comes at the end of Ramadan. So it's like, um, it's just a great way to get experience parts of Ramadan, even if you're not participating in it. So once upon an Eid, um, I suggest that everyone does their homework with. (laughs) And I would love to also piggyback onto that, that if you are an educator thinking about how you are incorporating that into your classroom, as well as creating space for your students that are celebrating Ramadan and, um, being aware of that in your classroom and, and, um, and acknowledging that and creating space for that. So just want to put that out there as well. <laughs> yeah, hundred um, percent. So thank you so much for coming on the episode and especially for celebrating our 100th episode. Yes. Um, we really, really, really appreciate you taking your time and your energy. Thank you. And congratulations on 100 episodes. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs> thank and thank you listeners for making it possible. Uh, here's to a hundred more episodes. Did you know channel 253 is member supported? 
I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Yeah, 2015, I, what, 2015 maybe? Yeah, really? I don't, I don't that remember been, That would have been six years ago. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.